Good morning. As you guys are drawing back to your seats, and before jumping into the Word of God, I wanted to just frame kind of our time in really this small season of our church. We find it very important as a church and as a community that the, the people that are a part of the church value the things that the church values. And this is not always an easy thing. I mean, there's a lot of people with a lot of different values, and, and, and I get it. But we as a church want to value the same things. And so we, we, to help in this process, we've created a sermon series and tools to help us value the, the things that we value. So as a church, we value the gospel of Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, and what it means for our lives. And, and, and sometimes it doesn't always communicate and it makes sense for everybody, but we want to communicate that. So we value it. We teach it. We also value being together and being in community. So some of you might be going, gosh, we just were sitting here for so long. Like we were talking. Like I have never been in a church that talks so long in the midst of a service. Yeah, it's because we value community. We be, we're in community throughout the weeks together. We're in community while we're at church the little things, but we value these things. And lastly, we value discipleship. It was Jesus who commanded his disciples to make disciples. Like it was a task given to the church to make disciples. And so we as a church, looking at Jesus, saying, what does Jesus value? What has he commanded us? Okay, we want to value those things, so we want to make disciples. And so what does it mean to make disciples and to teach people about the gospel and to be in community together, the values that we have as a church? Well, this is a tool, this ser series and this immersive experience that we're creating as a church, tools to value what we value as a church. And so if, on your seats, um, we have this little QR code. We created a, a small devotional that we're going to be using for the next few weeks, and you can just put your phone on that QR code and, and pull it up. This week's uh, experience is already up on that QR code. You can just pull it right up. And there's something for each and every day. And, and there's four, oh gosh, I'm not going to, there's just helpful tools given to you so that you can uh, think about the four different needs that we all have. So th th the series is, is continuing. It's on repentance, and it's repenting of the ways that we try to meet our, some of the foremost primary needs that we have, our need for significance and control and comfort and approval. And so today, we're going to be looking at the need we have for significance, and the call to all of us, to all of us, is the ways that we try to meet this need, this need for significance in our own strength. Um, it's a little different in terms of this, the way that this sermon is um, formatted. Uh, this, is, this is going to be kind of cherry-picking different texts rather than just looking at one text and expounding on one text throughout the one sermon. Uh, this is what... Pastors call topical sermons. It's a topical sermon. Um, so there it is. So we've got four different texts. Mark 9, Genesis 1, Romans 5, Ephesians 2. If you have a Bible, it's probably going to be hard to flip through all those. That's why I recommend the text in front of you. Um, do we not have that in our... Do we not have... Wow. My bad. If you're good with your phone, if you have a phone on your Bible, or you just want to listen, you can do that too. There's Bibles in the back, but it's again, it's hard. That's just an oversight uh, during this week, so I apologize. Let, let me read God's word, and then we'll study. Mark 9, 33 through 37. And the disciples came to Capernaum, and when Jesus was in the house, he asked, 
What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And so Jesus sat down and called the 12, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in his midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, Genesis 1, 26 through 27, going all the way to the beginning of the Bible. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man, that is humanity, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. Romans 5, verses 6 through 8. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now finally, Ephesians 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand we should walk in them. I'll never forget the first time I was scheduled to preach before my peers in the graduate school seminary that I was at. My stomach was in knots. You see, a lot was riding on that one sermon, my first sermon, <laughs> a lot. And so I worked hard and stressed out about every detail and spent too much time working on that one sermon every night that week. So I finally delivered the sermon and after I delivered that sermon, I had to go through what we call the ringer. The ringer is when you get down from preaching that sermon, you get to hear from your audience. Now, can you feel that? Can you imagine having to get up here and then sitting down and let, letting everyone let you know how that sermon went? Well, it wasn't a bad sermon. It wasn't. My first sermon didn't go that bad. I got a little bit of like nice stuff from the people, but you know, in truth, it's just kind of like, hey, that was a nice thing, and that was great, things like that. And I was like, okay, that's not bad. I survived the ringer. But I'll never forget, when I went to the next class, the oldest person in our class, who was an Englishman in his late 30s, so can you just picture an Englishman? He's got this awesome accent. And he's, he, so, so from our experience, he was, the, he was he's, I think he still is one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. And, and, and I come to find out, he had preached like 500 times. So here's this seasoned, preacher who's this Englishman with this awesome accent and as we sit down in the class he pulls me aside and I'm like okay what is George gonna tell me what is George gonna tell me and he said Dan that sermon was unbelievable I was like what it was and then he went to give me specific reasons why it was unbelievable I'm sitting there going I made it I am there. I am significant. I'm going to be a great pastor. I am the best, baby. This is what I thought. But then two weeks later, I had to give another sermon. And let me tell you something. I thought the first sermon was going to put my stomach in knots. That second sermon, having that, 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 uh, that information that George passed on to me, I was like, how can I preach the same sermon? Like, can, can I just preach the same sermon again and just get, get on with it? 
No, I couldn't do that. Okay, I gotta preach another sermon. And I got so nervous. How can I, how can I preach the same, like that good of a sermon? So I chose 2 Kings chapter five. <laughs> and now let me tell you, 2 Kings chapter five is a great text. It is beautiful. It's about this non-Jew who's leprous who gets healed and there's so much grace and there's so much beauty, but it's a long text and you have to read it a long time. By the time I'm done reading the text, I'm already bored myself, and I've got to prepare. I've got to teach the rest of the sermon. I'm going, oh, gosh. And so I start preaching the sermon that I had prepared, and I could just immediately feel the attention in the room just gone. I could feel, like, when I preach and it's not going well, I can feel the sweat start to form on my backbone. It is awful. Like, and you're just like, this is not going good. And now I've got to face the ringer when I'm done with this. Like, this is what I've got to do. And let me tell you, if the first sermon was like, like a grand champion of a sermon, this was a grand flop. I mean, I just fell on my face. And I was so dejected. When the, when the ringer came up and they started to give me information about it, they were kind. They were kind. It was a bad sermon. Uh, as one of my seminary professors would say, it didn't even get to the first row. Like, it just, it just wasn't good. But I thought about that how bad it was, and let me tell you something. If, if the first sermon made me out high on a mountain, this second sermon brought me to the lowest, lowest depths. As class was dismissed, I remember sitting at the back of the chapel, pondering this failure and this feeling of defeat that I was experiencing. And I can tell you this, I was on the verge of tears, and then my teacher pulled up beside me. In truth, I don't remember what my teacher said. He, he, there was a few words of how it wasn't as bad as I thought and that God can use a bad sermon and yada, yada, yada. The truth of it, though, is I don't really remember much of what he said because the sound of my insignificance was drowning out his vo voice. I was dejected and on the verge of hopelessness. I had significance but now it's gone. Let me tell you this. Just like me, you have this deep need for significance. And when you experience that significance, it feels like you're on top of the world. But when you lose it, it feels like life has lost all meaning. And that's what I felt that day, sitting in that chapel, preaching that sermon that even didn't even get past the first row. And I had to ask myself, where am I getting my significance? What about you? Where do you get your significance? Where do you base this need that you have for, to be significant, to stand out, to stand out amongst the crowd? By and large, here's the thing. I think most of us believe our significance is determined by what we've done, by what we do, or what we will eventually do. Simply put, all of us look to ourselves to establish our significance. And, and who's to blame us? We think this way because this is exactly what we see all around us. We, per, we put up on a pedestal the athletes who are the best and most famous and sought after. The women who are most beautiful and seem to have the biggest following and influence in the culture. I mean, just think of the Kardashians. We think they are the greatest in the be-all. They are the most significant. Those who have made the most money. I mean, they get their way all the time, so they must be significant. I mean, everywhere we look, significance is achieved by strength, skill, 
beauty, intelligence, money, friends, wisdom, courage, clout, power, where you can get into, who you know, and where you've been. And so we seek these things all in our strength in hopes that one day significance will come to us. Let me just give a little pastoral bit to this. I think one of the th reasons why this is such a, a prominent reality in so many of us is because we are inundated with these pictures and images on our social media. And, and these social media images scream to us of significance every time we open and scroll, open and scroll. And moment by moment we do this, we're tempted to believe significance, our significance is dependent upon us. I love what John Mark shared with me this week as we were talking about it. He says, social media is a large room where everyone has megaphones. And every once in a while, one of those megaphones will be elevated above everyone else, only to be knocked down by a cat video. <laughs> Listen, yeah. <laughs> John Mark, way to go. Listen, are you tired of your significance being challenged by cat videos? Seriously. Are you tired of your significance falling with the smallest mistakes that you make or the failures that come in every one of us? I know I am. Listen, if this is you, I want you to consider John, or Mark chapter nine. The disciples had just argued amongst themselves who the greatest of them were, just like you and I. They were trying to find their significance from being the best, the brightest, the bravest. They were trying to find significance and greatness within themselves. And yes, we can think about this being so petty and childish, but we all do it. We just don't voice it. Now, Jesus was aware of what they were arguing about, and so he began to teach them, saying, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He then takes a child in his arms to illustrate his point. And for our sake of time today, I want you to see two important aspects of Jesus' teaching. First, he doesn't shame them for longing for significance. And I want you to know that the need for significance is not ungodly or improper. This need for significance is God-given. Had Jesus shamed them, he would not have said, if you want to be first, then be last. He simply says, if you want to be first, if you want significance, be last. Secondly, Jesus' teaching redefines how we get significance. And his way of gaining significance is antithetical to the way that we see it in our world. And rather than us defining our significance, Jesus proposes his definition of significance. Rather than allowing ourselves to define our significance, Jesus says, take my definition of significance. Look, if you're tired, of those cat videos knocking you off or your failures of life dropping your significance. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to redefine your significance by putting Jesus' definition in your life. And what we see in scripture, and this is kind of why it says stepping back, looking at scriptures, there's three prominent defining messages for you that communicate to all of us the significance that we already have. And we need to repent of the ways that we seek significance in our own strength and be loved, receiving from Jesus 
what he says about us. And there's three things that the scripture says about us. He saved, or excuse me, he made me, he saved me, he called me. These are the definitions that we are called to embrace right here, right now, and to push off the way of the world. So I want to study these three phrases that we might take that and find significance so that we don't lose it with every failure or drop. So let's look at these three ways that God gives to us his, his definition of our significance. First, he made me. He made me. Draw your attention back to Genesis 1. We're told something very important about all, about all human beings. Verse 26, God said, at the beginning of creation, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so this is what God did. He created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is very simple. If you are a human, which you are, <laughs> there's no one not human in this room, you are made in the image of God. And because of that, you stand out above all that has been created. But we live in a world, here's the thing, we live in a world that will lessen the significance of humanity. Whether it be the three-fifths principle that was placed on the slaves in the South during the early years of the United States, or the way many treat children in the womb today, the world has a way of making certain humans more significant than the rest based on their utility. If they don't serve a meaningful purpose according to the world, then they are considered less significant. Remember, value according to the world is determined by what you've done, what you do, or what you will do. But God has a completely different perspective of, of humans than the world. All humans bear his image. And theologians agree that this doesn't mean physical attributes, but rather the presence of a will, emotions, and reason, the ability to think and act creatively, or the ability to interact socially with others. Like Unlike animals, humans reflect God in this way. I mean, if you think about it for a moment, consider taking humans out of this world. And I think you take that which is most beautiful in the world because it is humans who reflect the image of God. Look, up until this last spring, I coached my oldest son's soccer team. And it, as the coach of my son's soccer team, I always tried my best to be fair and balanced in regards to who gets to play and and, and, and how long Benjamin gets to play. I, I never wanted the families that are a part of my team to think, oh, he's just favoring his kid. Of course, he's gonna be favoring his kid. And so I tried my best, guys, and I did, and I was true to that the whole time. But can I tell you something? When Benjamin, my oldest son, scored a goal, you know what was going on inside of me? Yeah, baby, way to go, yes. And when Benjamin was on the field, guess what? I was a little bit more interested. And you know why? Because Benjamin was made in my image. Benjamin had more significance for me than the other kids. Now, the other kids were significant, but Benjamin, watching him play, was more significant. It's the same with God. We reflect his image, and therefore, simply by being made in his image, we are significant. He made you. You are significant. And this, of course, means a lot, not only for us, but for the people that we interact with each and every day. I, I hate seeing 
godly people treating ungodly people in ungodly ways. I mean, I've already mentioned some of the ways, but I hate it when Christians begin to dehumanize people because they hold to a different view of themselves. Look, you can disagree with people, and you should disagree with people, but you shouldn't dehumanize people when they disagree with you. So we can talk with people, interact with people. Why? Because those people are made in the image of God. And because they're made in the image of God, they're significant. So friends, if we go down this road of dehumanizing people, we are falling into the trap of being dehumanized ourselves. You know that, right? Let us not fall into this trap. Let us stand for truth. But let us stand for truth in humane ways. Why? Because we are made in the image of God. We're made in his image. He made us. We're significant. Okay. He made us. It's somewhat, it's somewhat I mean, that's nice. But it's somewhat impersonal. And I, if, I'm, if I'm just being straight honest with you, that kind of content doesn't necessarily like, fight the way the world. I mean, it's good. But we need something more personal. And that's what we get in Romans 5. The second defining characteristics of our significance comes from Romans 5, and, and it is this, where it, he saved me. We can embrace this. He saved me, Romans 5. Now, now, consider how value is determined in this world. Have you ever considered how value is determined? James gave me a book the other day on Bitcoin. I don't know. What, I, I'm trying to figure it out myself. But the whole beginning of that book is about how money and value and all these things. It is so helpful. Thinking about value. Now, how is value determined? Well, I'm not going to get into a whole economics class right now, but you know that value is often determined by supply and demand. Now, if there's a limited supply and a high demand, what's the price going to be, low or high? High. That's right. Now, let's think about it in this way. If there's an abundance of supply and low demand, what's the price of that going to be? Low. See, you guys get it. Look at this. Economics 101. Simple. Way to go. Now, we embrace this same view for how we determine our significance. Our significance is viewed in the world and in our minds that if we stand out and perform above others, then we will be significant. Economic reality. But what about God? Is our standing and our significance with God determined by what we do? By our standing out above others? Absolutely not. And this is what is so profound about Romans 5, 6 through 8. Let me read it again. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Now, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, how does God value his people? He doesn't value his people according to what they do. So the whole economic formula that we use to define our significance is turned on its head by this one passage. God does not run on the worldly paradigm to determine that which is significant. He runs on an entirely different one, one determined by Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension. 
Christ died for us while we were still sinners. He, he lived the life we were called to live, but we didn't. He died the death we deserved, but we don't experience that. And he demonstrates his power in his resurrection. He shows to us those he values are not dependent on what they do. You see, he saved us from this world of determining our significance on our own value, on our own strength. His significant, our significance is defined in his salvation towards us. And his salvation is beautiful. The picture of our value, though there are a lot of worthless people in here, you and I, this picture, this, the upside down, the low demand, high price, that kind of thing, the price, of course, for us is the blood of Jesus on the cross. He paid for us with his life on the cross. Listen, you are valuable. If you trust Jesus, you are valuable, not because of what you've done, but what he has done for you. And he died for you because he loved you. And he loves you because he loved you. There's a passage in Deuteronomy 7, and it doesn't quite make sense, and we can't wrap our full mind around this, but let me read it for you. The Lord did not set his affection on you, and he's talking to the Israelites, and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. Why did he save you? Because he loved you. Why does he love you? Because he loved you. And it is not dependent on what you do. You are significant. You are significant, but it's not according to you. It was paid for you by the blood of Jesus Christ. One of my favorite books to read to my kids is a book titled Just Because You're Mine. It's a book about a little squirrel and his dad who go through the forest talking about why the daddy loves the little baby squirrel. Now, the squirrel bounces around the forest trying to figure out, why does dad love me? You, dad, you tell me you love me. And so he goes to his dad. He goes, do you love me because I'm brave? I can dart across branch to branch. You love me because I'm brave? <laughs> no, his dad laughs. Well, do you love me because I'm good at collecting berries? I can put all these berries in these trees. Do you love me because of that? <laughs> no, son, I don't love you because you could collect berries. Oh, well, then maybe you love me because I'm handsome. Is that right? No, son. So after a long day of playing in the forest, the dad and son head home, and the little boy gets sleepy. And so the father takes his sleepy little squirrel and puts him in bed. And the father, as the son is falling asleep, the father looks at him and says, no, son, I don't love you because you're brave or because you're good at collecting berries or that you're handsome, though you are those things. I love you just because you're mine. I love you because you're mine. Jesus crawled up on the cross, not because you are some special, significant, done amazing things. He did it just the opposite. And he paid for you by his blood. It's the opposite of the economic world. He saved you just because you're his. So if God considers you to be value, so valuable that he's willing to put on flesh and blood and die in your place, why then do you constantly try to convince yourself to be better and to do more and to be good, to collect more berries, to be more beautiful, 
Why? He saved you from these things. Let us put these things away and embrace the gospel, the truth of who you are, that you are saved, not because of what you've done, but because of who he is. Now, when we take this up, man, it really starts to make a difference, and it gives us and equips us to counter the message our world tells us about our significance. He made me. He saved me. And lastly, he called me. I want you to look at Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God, called, God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As valuable people, which I've been communicating to you today, who are made in God's image and saved from our sin by the blood of Jesus, Jesus now calls us to walk in the good works that he has prepared beforehand. And what I want you to see is the high calling that this text gives to us. To those who bow the knee to Jesus, this is a great and high, high calling. It is a calling to serve with Jesus on his team and to run the plays that he has given the, uh, us to play. Oh, have you ever... Uh, let's go back to the schoolyard ball. You ever, remember, you ever play schoolyard ball? I love schoolyard ball. At schoolyard ball, teams are picked one by one, and usually the teams are formed with the two best players. Boom, boom. All right, if you're not the two best players, now you're sitting there waiting to be picked. And what do those people do? They usually look and they say, all right, who's the biggest? All right, come on. Who was the best jump shot? Let's be playing basketball. Who was the best jump shot in warm-up? All right, come on. And if there's more players waiting to be picked than the number of team players that can play, there's this sinking feeling that can come into all of us, right? It's this, am I good enough? Am I going to be picked? Am I going to be called? Am I? Am I? And if you've never been called, there's this gut punch that happens to you. And maybe it's anger or sadness or whatever. Uh, I can relate to all of those things. The sadness and the, diff, the, the sadness that comes from not being called, it hits home. And it communicates to us a little bit about our significance, doesn't it? But here's the beauty of this passage. Jesus is saying, I've picked you. You're on my team. Which means you're significant. And not only that, there's something uniquely special about each and every one of you. Where you live, where you work, where you play, that I've called you to be. I've called you in those places, this text says, to be my team wherever you are. I love Ephesians 2.10 because it tells us that those whom he made and saved are called to be on his team. Skill doesn't determine participation. God's saving does. And because of that, those who are made and saved are, collected, are called to do his bidding here in this place. And there's no higher calling in life to, than to walk in the works that he has prepared beforehand. The question becomes for all of us is what does this look like? And I think there's two questions that help us understand where we are called to walk. And those two questions are very personal. For each and every one of you. This is not a prescriptive thing. This is something for you to consider. Where has God called me to be on his team? Two questions. Where have you been? God has prepared beforehand your calling. And this certainly includes the family you grew up in. And that means good or bad. 
the places you've lived and been, the education you've received, the opportunities you've had, these are not to be ignored. We must ask ourselves, where have I been? These are the very experiences that God has formed to move you out and to be a blessing in the world. Where you've been is a significant part of where he's calling you to walk. Now consider the Apostle Paul. Before he encountered the living Christ, he was a zealous persecutor of the Christian church with a focus on the zealous persecutor of the church. He'd been educated by the best Jewish teachers, skilled in writing and working and defending the Jewish faith. But the moment he encountered Jesus, his zeal and his skill were used for building the church of Christ. Where he'd been directed where he's going. And so where is God calling you? Consider where you've been. The education you have, the family you grew up in. This is important. It's this kind of thought that helped me come to Little Rock. I mean, I'm a Floridian, 31 years in Florida. Now I'm in Arkansas, seven years. What was it? It was my background leading me to a place like Little Rock, God calling me. So you have to ask yourself, where have I been? What is God, where has God taken me? What are the wounds that I have? Those are important pieces to where God's calling you to move for good. Secondly, not only where have you been, but where are you now? Where has God placed you right now? What job do you have? Where do you go to school? Where do you take care of each and e who do you take care of each and every day? What neighborhood do you live in? What city do you call home? Where is your church? These are the places Jesus is telling you to walk in good works. It's not some ethereal like, you know, we need to change the world. What? Like you don't have the power to change the world, just FYI. But God has called you right now to be a part of the people that you interact with each and every day and the jobs that you have and the people you interact with. My friend Rory loves to ask the question, look at your, he, he, he'll, tell, he'll tell you, look at your feet. Look at your feet. I'm gonna ask you guys to look at your feet. Look at your feet. Where are those puppies going? Where are those feet going? That is where God is calling you to serve and to walk in the good works that he has planned beforehand. You wanna know the play that he's called? Look at where your feet go. Because those puppies will tell you that's where you serve. And my friends, our serving the kingdom is not trying to make God love us more. No, we're already significant because he made us and he saved us. No, it's just an opportunity for us to lift others up as we have been lifted up ourselves. In the 2011 movie, The Help, Abilene Clark is a caretaker of a young girl named Mae Mobley. She's three, four years old. And Mae Mobley's mother, Hilly Hillbrook, has little time for her little girl, Mae Mobley. And so she gives most of the parenting to Abilene Clark. Hilly Hillbrook, though, wants to find significance in Jackson, Mississippi, the social scene, being the smartest, the brightest, the, the most... Uh, influential, the most beautiful. And, and when she does give her daughter time, it's very rigid and very difficult to watch if you've seen it. And yet watching this difficult childhood unfold for Mae Mobley, Miss Abilene wants this little, little girl to know that she does matter, that she is loved, that she does have significance. And so when she puts her little daughter, or when she puts the little girl she's been tasked to serve to sleep, 
She, she whispers the words, you was kind, you was smart, you was important. It's some of the most memorable phrases from that movie. If you've ever watched that movie, if, you, if you're not crying in that scene, then you're not living, okay? It is powerful. I mean, I, I don't remember any line from that movie other than you is kind, you is smart, you is important. And there are three phrases that Abilene gives to Mae Mobley for her to deal with the difficult reality of her life with her mom seeking significance in the Jackson, Mississippi socialite scene. Obviously, we don't get to see what Mae Mobley does, but it's a memorable phrase for her to counter the difficult reality that she lives in. It's the same with what we've looked at today. We live in a world where our significance is determined by what we do what we've done, or what we will do. Our significance is determined by us. But this morning, Jesus is offering a different way, his way. In his way, he said, I made you, I saved you, I called you. You are already significant. As we all go from here, it is my hope and prayer that each and every one of us would take these words to heart and these words would shape the way we live. That we will stop being cast down at every, every you know, sadness or failure of our life and we just press on serving those around us wherever our feet take us and lifting them up. May God do this in all of us. Let me pray. Lord, we give thanks to you for the significance that your word has reminded us that we already have. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is a significance that is beyond our wildest imaginations. Lord, we give thanks to you for these realities, that we are made in your image, that you have saved us, that we are called by you to serve those around us. And this calling doesn't determine our significance. We already are significant. So we ask that you would continue to, to give light to us how we can serve you in beautiful ways in our city, church, home, neighborhood, and wherever else we find ourselves.